Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Coming to you from the Blue Chew Broadcast Headquarters here in Cody, Wyoming, the center of my Blue Chew universe. Happy to be here. and looking forward to getting to New York. Now, but without further ado, let's get into it, man. Let's talk about why we're here at Spring Stampede 1997. We put a bunch of spring stampedes on the poll, and I was shocked that 97 won. Uh, as strange as it is, this is the spring stampede I remember the most, but I sort of assumed that the one where DDP won the world title would win, but that wasn't the case. Uh, sort of fitting, though, that DDP is front and center on this one as well, since he has uh, the opportunity to main event his first WCW pay per view against the Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, we're going to dig into it in great detail, but when you first heard that spring stampede 97 won the poll, did you even remember what this show had on it or does it all sort of run together? No, it all runs together. You know, and I, <clears throat> I know people listening to this, especially people listening who are just really, you know, loyal fans and, and remember more about the history of WCW or any other form of wrestling for that matter. Uh, probably they've pro- probably forgotten more about it than I, that I've known. Uh, because I just don't, you know, live in the past and, and I don't look at wrestling the same way some fans do. That being said, it does kind of all run together. You know, I've, I've said this before when I probably produced, I don't know, 5,000, maybe 6,000 hours of televised wrestling, um, about 80 or a hundred pay-per-views over the course of 30 years. And they do all kind of run together when you're in the middle of doing it. You know, when you're a fan watching it and, and, and enjoying it, it's one thing, but when you're, when you spend, you know, months building up to a pay-per-view and working on it, the creative and all the nuances and details that go into that and, and then producing it. And it's just one right after another, right after another. Oh, by the way, you know, you've got, you know, five hours of primetime television to produce as well. It's hard to really, you know, single out, certain pay-per-views you remember certain beats you know certain big moments of course but when you just hear the title of a show and a date you know i'm i'm heading to the wwe network because i i barely remember being there more or less being a part of it well that's why i enjoy you know sort of revisiting these shows with you is watching the pay-per-views back for you most of the time for the first time ever so in this case you know 22 years later it's the first time you've seen it back, but it does really work to sort of jog your memory and allow us to explore the show, not just for what it was, but by jogging your memory, we sort of get the context. And as we like to say here on the show, context is king because these shows didn't take place in a vacuum. Uh, so let's sort of break down exactly, um, the, the business metric of spring stampede to get us started here. April 6th, 1997, we're in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I got to tell you, I know we talk about this all the time that when I always say, man, why was this in Mississippi? Because uh, it seems so random to me that WCW had so many damn pay-per-views in Mississippi, but you're pretty consistent. You know, it was a, it was an easy overhead situation to, to, to handle. You didn't have to ship a bunch of people. You didn't have to fly a bunch of people. It was a drive from Atlanta and Tupelo, Mississippi got the benefit here. And they came out in droves. WCW is hot, hot, hot. 8,356 fans. That's a sellout. Uh, 7,428 are actually paying. 
And that's a $107,000 gate for a show that is in Tupelo, Mississippi and Hulk Hogan's not on it. Uh, it does a 0.58 buy rate. Uh, so pretty good business, especially for, you know, a B show. I think that's fair to say, but the tagline for this event is something that when I saw it, I just groaned and thought, oh, I cannot wait to bust Eric on this. These men do solemnly swear to kick, fight, punch, stomp, and flatten anybody who gets in their way. Yeah, that's a pretty good branding statement for a professional wrestling event, don't you think? No. Why? That's fucking horrible. What? What is so horrible? Tell me what one thing you don't like about it. One thing. Well, all of it. First of all, the poster has Mongo front and center. And then Arn behind him, and then Rick behind him, and Benoit in the back. A Mongo pay-per-view poster that says, These men do solemnly swear to kick, fight, stomp, punch, and flatten anybody who gets in their way. That is the lamest shit ever. Like, this is... Now, you know, I disagree. That, to me, as you... know, I, I didn't see the poster. I didn't Google it. I don't know what it looks like. But listening to you describe it, this sounds like a low-budget action film to me. You know, this, and, and it's like the, the trailer would have that kind of, these men do solemnly swear to kick, punch, stomp, anything that gets in their way. I like it. I'd go see that movie. Well, it, 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 to me is another testament to sort of, you know, to use an old country saying the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing because, you know, the horsemen are prominently featured here and. Well, they're not really prominently featured on the pay-per-view. And I know that you guys had to get sort of the branding for this together ahead of time. And so because of that, you don't really know what the creative is. You just feel like you've got to push a commercial out. But how frustrating is that where the promotion for the pay-per-view isn't really sort of consistent with what the presentation will be? Brother, you just hit on a really, really uh, important point and that was especially at the, in this period of time remember we were you know reliant solely upon direct tv and um dish primarily there were a couple other smaller pay-per-view providers in there but you know direct tv was was the monster platform and we had to um market and promote and provide them with all the collateral materials whether it be posters commercials whatever they needed to get the message out to the local cable companies in their markets we had to get that to them sometimes and I'm, I'm sure somebody could correct me but i think it was at least 90 days in advance well hell 90 days in advance we didn't even know half the time what the main event might be you know our stories weren't planned as much as you know we i, I personally strove to have long-term story and one of the reasons was just this you know we knew internally that we were not maximizing the co-promotion that we were getting for for free from direct tv that was one of the really added value benefits of, of being a partner with with a direct tv or a dish network or whomever is that you know we slide them we provided them that material and they promoted it for free you know at no cost to us in the marketplace because they were incentivized to do that the more people that bought the pay-per-view you know, the the more buys came in, the more buys came in, the largest their 50 or 45 percent of the revenue share would be. I think at that time it was about 45 or 50 percent went directly to to direct TV. So they were incentivized to promote the hell out of it. And that <clears throat> that worked very well for us. 
The downside, as you're pointing out here, is that if in order to take advantage of that, it was incumbent upon us to deliver those collateral materials on their schedule. Well, like I said, they often needed things so far in advance that creatively we just didn't have our ducks in a row. So you would take kind of a general approach to it, a thematic approach, which, by the way, going back to a couple, you know, probably now half half a year ago when we would talk about Sturgis. And I, I you know, suggested to you that it was important to me that each one of our pay-per-views had a very distinct theme that would associate itself with some form of presentation, uncensored being one. We just, you know, we've covered that now for the last couple of weeks. Uncensored was kind of a no rules, hair brain, anything goes, you know, monkey fucking a football kind of creative, right? Um, it was meant to be that way. You know, Sturgis, you know, had its own vibe. This pay-per-view, Spring Stampede, had its own vibe. And one of the reasons, aside from it just kind of makes sense when you have as many pay-per-views as we did and you had to make each one feel special, one of the reasons that, you know, we really try to theme our pay-per-views is to kind of mitigate, I guess, the issue when it came to creative. So if we were promoting the nature of the pay-per-view, uncensored, sturgis, you know, Halloween Havoc, another great example. Bash at the Beach, another great example. If we're if we're really driving the theme and the nature of the pay-per-view, we become we hoped we would become less reliant on these specific matchups. Because, you know, n- not only were we not creatively that far ahead of the curve, and by the way, you know, even as Again, I, I only point this out it, to keep things in context, not to make an excuse for myself. It is what it is. It was what it was. But even today, WWE is in the same exact boat. And part of it is because, you know, the nature of the Vince McMahon creative process, everybody knows, well documented uh, from those who were, worked there in the past and still work there today. Shit changes right up until 20 minutes before television sometimes. Because sometimes better ideas come along, uh, certain things happen during the course of the day that reveal maybe an idea you had or a promo you thought was going to be good isn't going to quite live up to its expectations. So you're, you're constantly changing. But the big thing is injuries. They, they were so prevalent, you know, and then right below that, you know, kind of disaster waiting to happen on any given pay-per-view is you have the constant rollover of contracts and negotiations and and that's another underlying you know variable there that can come up and bite you in the ass unexpectedly within that 90 day advance you know marketing window and then there's just other stuff travel all kinds of things can go wrong you know when you're doing live tv and the more specific you are or we were or we were asked to be with regard to that collateral material the more often we were flat out wrong and it was sometimes easier or less painful. Let's put it that way. Not easier. It was less painful to be very general about something in promotion than it was to be very specific and then not be able to, to deliver it. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about some of those issues on this pay-per-view with regard to Scott Hall and, and, and others. But um, yeah, it was, it was always a challenge and a very frustrating one. It's a little different now, you know, because of 
the advance in technology and digital and the ease in which you can actually start promoting things that didn't exist 25 years ago, you know, I'm sure that window isn't nearly as painful, that 90-day window isn't as painful now as it was back then. But, yeah, it was frustrating, no doubt. And you could see that even with the commercial for Slamboree that ran in the middle of this where, you know, you had um, Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes and guys like that talking about somebody needs to stop the NWO and who's going to stop Hollywood Hogan and Hogan's not on the next pay-per-view. And, you know, the main event is actually going to be Flair Piper and uh, Kevin Green against Hall Nash and Six. But either way. Let's keep it going here. I do want to pivot here and talk about this being the second spring stampede event. You guys, you know, used to, you've used the phrase here on the show, tent pole events, and you did have some, you know, Halloween havocs and super brawls and starcades, but you would sort of bounce around some other ideas. And then there became some that were staples like the great American bash or bash at the beach. But the first spring stampede happened way back in 1994 It was Ric Flair and Ricky steamboat for the world title as the main event there, uh, sort of, uh, on the five year anniversary of their incredible trilogy from 89, but there wasn't a spring stampede in 95 or 96. Why not? Truth is I never really liked the spring stampede theme. I thought. And which is ironic because in 1997, I was actually building my, the home that I live in currently in Cody, Wyoming. So, you know, not that I grew up, you know, in the West around, you know, cowboys and ranches and all that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not that guy. Right. I, I grew up in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Minneapolis. Um, but even though I had an affinity for all things Western and was willing to move my family to the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, uh, I didn't like the cowboy kind of Western theme right. for, for WCW because it, to me, it was a reflection of Southern, not Southern, but regional, you know, it was smaller, you know, it didn't, you know, it, what, and here's what, you know, even today, I always think about if I'm working on a television product or project for another network or a movie or whatever, whatever it is I'm dabbling in outside of wrestling, you know, one of the things that everybody, you know, is aware of is in order for anything to be successful, you know, you want to, you want everybody to love your stuff. Right. But the reality is New York, LA, Chicago is your markets. And if you can't satisfy the audience there, you're not going to be able to make enough, an, enough up in the middle of the country generally to, especially back then, to be successful. doesn't mean you won't have some success, but it will be very limited. It'll be smaller scale success. And again, you know, we've got to keep everything in context. We were trying to, NWA, you know, prior to WCW, even WCW, because so many of the, the so many of the uh, creative people and, and wrestling people that were a part of NWA came along to WCW. So the, the theme, the vibe, the feel, um, even early in WCW up, including 1994 still had that kind of narrow branded feel to it. You know, Dusty, you know, I can't, you know, talk enough about how close I was to Dusty and how much I respected him. And we were very much alike in, in, in some ways, but 
you know, Dusty loved anything with a cowboy hat on it. You know, if there was a bull involved in a cowboy hat and a bull rope and a cowbell, he tag him in, you know, and that influence w- was something that, w- you know, dominated to a degree WCW for, for, in my opinion, too long, long winded way of saying I wanted to get away from that stigma. Not that there's anything wrong with it. There was just been too much of it by that point. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, there was too much of, and that's, uh, ratings whoop ass on the WCW column. You guys are dominating Monday night raw. Let's talk about the lead up to this pay-per-view March 3rd. Raw does a 1.9 nitro does a 3.4 raw does a 2.3 the next week on March 10th. So you think, well, Hey, they're way up. Well, so is nitro. It does a 3.5 raw gets a little better on March 17th up to a 2.4. But so does Nitro, a 3.6. On March 24th, Raw actually goes up, but Nitro goes down. Raw does a 2.5, but Nitro still wins with a 3. And then on March 31st, Nitro is firmly back in control, a 3.4, and Raw is up again, but to a 2.7. Now, on the heels of this pay-per-view, the night after Spring Stampede, uh, Nitro goes up one more time, a 3.7, the highest run uh, but you know, all the way through March, this would have been the highest rating on April 7th and uh, raw is down to a 2.2. So firmly in control, you guys are over Monday night raw. How are you feeling about the momentum and what's the reaction in early 97 on Tuesday when those ratings come in? Uh, it'd be disingenuous of me to suggest that we weren't all high-fiving each other at every given opportunity and not just because of the ratings, but just overall, we were profitable you know, we we were no longer the you know bastard redheaded stepchild that would show up at the corporate party every year, even though nobody wanted us to be there. Uh, things had changed a lot. Executives, and I'm talking about executives in Turner Broadcasting who I wouldn't have even recognized, even though I knew their names, that did all of their business on the local golf courses in Atlanta, and you know we're, we're at the upper echelon of the Turner executive food chain. Those people were calling and asking for tickets for their neighbors and their friends, you know, and their associates, you know, and that was such a, it's hard for me to really describe or articulate what a 180 degree turn that was from really only 24 months previous to this. You know, we went from being the really, and I can't overstate this and Tony, I'm sure can attest to probably more of this than I could because he was around in the beginning and I wasn't, but nobody other than Ted Turner and maybe a guy in finance by the name of Dick Cheatham wanted us to be there. I mean, we were literally shunned if they could have barred us from, you know, the, 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 the food court, they would have, it, it was that bad. Um, but to be able to turn that situation around and, and have WCW employees, you know, be proud to be a WCW employee, to to be recognized for their hard work, to no longer feel like, you know, they were showing up at a party that nobody wanted them to be at um, was a big deal. And of course, the ratings were icing on the cake. It was validation in the in the most obvious way, you know, the most public way. It was validation. So um, for me to understate how important and how much fun uh, and satisfying that was would be <laughs> It would be unfair to our listeners because it, it was amazing. 
let's talk a little bit about, um, the, uh, the business, not just the ratings, but the revenue, the average attendance in March of 96. So a year prior is 3,790 fans to your live events. Fast forward a year. And in March of 97, we're up nearly 60% to 6,024. Let's look at the average gate in April of 96. It's 40,230 bucks. A year later here in April 97, we're up 123% to $89,723. You went from selling out like 9% of your shows in April of 96 to selling out 46.2% in April of 97. And of course, ratings are up around 5% as well. Every metric you can look at from 96 to 97 is up and it's worth mentioning 96 was up over 95 and 95 was up over 94. It's an incredible thing. Momentum. Is it not? Because it does feel like it's on your side here. And sometimes when momentum's on your side, it feels like everything you touch turns to gold, but you were also around long enough to see it go the other way. And it feels like everything you touch goes to shit, but this right here in 97, this is the best of times brother. Is it not? It was the golden era <laughs> of of the Monday Night Wars from my perspective. Now, I'm sure WWE felt much differently, but you're right. It 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 was personally, professionally, financially, morale in, in terms of morale, uh, in terms of creative. Uh, it it probably was the golden era. But I wanna I wanna jump on something else that you said that I I feel like I should address because I believe in it so much. M- momentum is an incredibly difficult thing to create. I, I metaphorically, I, whenever I hear somebody talking about creating momentum, because everybody tries to, I mean, no matter what it is you're doing, you know, if you're making microchips, you're trying to create momentum in the marketplace. If you're producing television, you want to hit show music, you name it. Momentum is a thing that everybody strives for. And we all know how hard it is to accomplish. The only thing that's more difficult than creating momentum is maintaining momentum. And sometimes when you work so hard to create it and then let's face it, you know, it takes talent, it takes vision, it takes hard work, it takes all of the things that we all like to credit our ourselves for and makes us feel good about ourselves and beefs up our resume and all that shit. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a fair amount of good fortune and timing, sometimes it's just luck. It plays a big part of that. You know, conditions have to be right. The market conditions have to be right. The economy has to be right. You know, everything had to be right for us to reach this kind of crescendo. And sometimes, I'll speak for myself, not sometimes. For me, when I was in that spot, I became blinded by the very momentum that we created, meaning I I went in because I had never been through anything like this before. You know, I was never involved in the creative process before. I was always on the kind of dry end of the business side of things, right? Aside from being a character on TV, but that was different. I wasn't really involved in that process other than being the guy that, you know, said the words in front of a camera. So for me, this was all so new. And my inexperience, quite frankly, is not a better way to say it, allowed me to get comfortable within the momentum that I created because I was naive. I didn't know what I know now. I didn't know that creating it is incredibly difficult, but by maintaining it is even harder. 
I didn't know that second part. So you think, man, I'm here. We created it. We should be able to. You know, logic would say, well, if we were able to check all the boxes and get to this freaking point, why the hell couldn't we keep going? We figured it out. We have the formula. It was a, a very logical, albeit naive and inexperienced way to look at the success that we had. Whereas now, when I look at success, it's like, okay, you've made it. You're successful. You've accomplished a lot. Now you really have to start digging because it can change so fast. And if you haven't thought about it, if you're not prepared for it, if you don't have a plan B and a plan C, and you're not really keeping your finger on the pulse of the future as opposed to the the, the present, you get bit in the ass. And that's exactly what happened to us. And I think this is a just a perfect example of, you know, and I'm, look, I, I try hard. I know I get defensive sometimes and I can't help it. It's, I guess it's my nature. And I, I'll get defensive about other people and other things that I believe in. It's not just me. It's not an ego thing so much as people might think it is. But, you know, I, 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 I only hope you know, given another opportunity, no matter what, what it's in, you know, even if it's in volunteering and, and, and working for the Shriners Hospital, if I'm ever involved in anything and it becomes successful again, I, I really hope I'm able to um, help people that I'm working with understand that, you know, getting there is only half the battle. Staying there is a lot harder. Uh, Messer would report that there was a nasty auto accident before Spring Stampede where Regal Benoit and Nancy Sullivan were coming from the gym to the hotel when an apparent drunk driver hit Regal's four wheel drive car and it rolled twice. Nancy was banged up a little and Benoit was bleeding from the hand and that opened up again during the Malenko match, but all were basically fine. That according to the observer, you were there. What do you remember about this? Never happened. He made it up. No, I'm just kidding. He's telling the truth. Oh, fuck. I was about to say, what, what, <laughs> what's, what's happening? We're making up car wrecks now? I had to fuck with you for calling me an old man. Well, you did. Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't know what to say for a minute. I was like, well, I don't know where to go from here. I know. That's a first, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Tell me about this accident. Where do you hear about this? Uh, I probably heard about it through Janie. That's where I heard about most things. Because everything, you know, it's not like, you know, I had... 20 people checking in with me and keeping me up to breast with, you know, things every day. But anything that got to me generally came through Janie as a rule, unless it was an emergency and I was out of the office or something. I uh, heard about it, remember it, you know, vaguely because it ultimately didn't become a major issue, but we certainly thought at the time that it would, and we're concerned for everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, not something to hear about very often. And, and if I'm honest with you, as much as wrestlers drive, you would think it would be even more common than it is, you know, with, with so many of these guys, especially on the main roster, you know, driving 200, 300 miles a night, every night between towns, you would think that this would be an even more common occurrence. And not to make light of this or to sound like I'm somehow indirectly promoting it because it was cool or it was the good old days. It was a horrible, horrible situation and I'm not proud of it. But in addition to wrestlers driving, you know, hundreds of miles late at night in between shots, there was usually a case or two of beer and any other, you know, imagine <laughs> narcotic or, or recreational um, drug involved as well. And, yeah, it's amazing that, you know, it didn't happen far more frequently with 
more devastating effects or, or consequences. Yeah. I mean, that's been around for a long time. I mean, Flair used to say that, you know, when he first broke in the business, you know, the vets would drive and, and obviously be drinking the entire time, but they would take their empty beer bottles and try to throw them at the street signs, you know, the, on the highway or whatever, it was like a game. And it's just, it's weird how the business has changed so much from, you know, what used to be not just accepted, but sort of the normal and, and now not so much. Well, and when you think about it, not to go so too far off track with this thought, but to, to keep this in context, you know, when I, the first time I came to Wyoming in 1977, I was 22 years old when I first came here, it was legal to drink and drive. You could literally pull up, and to this day, it's still true. You, not that you can drink and drive, obviously, but you could still pull up to a liquor store anywhere here in Cody, Wyoming, where I live, and they have drive-through windows, just like a Burger King. You don't even have to go in the store. And back in the day, when I first started coming out here, if a cop pulled you over and you had a beer in your lap, that was cool. Now, if you were drunk, if he suspected that you had had too much to drink, he or she, the officer, could pull you out, give you a DUI. But back then, you know, the, the limit was like 0.15. You know, now here in Wyoming, I think it's 0.07 or 0.08. And, and that's just culturally across our country, you know, drinking and driving. It's always been wrong. It's always been dangerous. But you go back 20, 25, 30, 35 years, go back to, you know, early parts of Rick's career, as, as we've referenced it here. Um, yeah, cop pull you over. You've had a couple beers. Yeah, get home. As long as you're not driving all over the road and, you know, putting yourself or somebody else in danger, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, get yourself home, you know, get off the road as soon as you can. Now <laughs> it's a whole different world, but you know, I think the lifestyle of wrestling back then, I think the lax DUI laws and awareness, really it's awareness more than anything of how, just how dangerous it is. Um, it just it wasn't the case back then, but even in even at this period in 1997, certainly DUI laws you know had tightened up considerably, but the lifestyle hadn't really changed much, uh, hadn't really caught up with the change in the laws. So, it's amazing not only that there weren't more accidents and, and devastating injuries, but it's amazing that you know there weren't more people spending three or four days in jail over the weekend waiting for a judge to show up, you know, and and get a hearing because now. You get pulled over now, at least where I live, you know, you're, you're there till morning till you see a judge. So, um, could have created a lot, a lot more havoc back then. Let's just put it, put it that way. Well, let's talk about, uh, some, some news and notes behind the scenes. Scott Hudson is going to start the week of spring stampede as an announcer. Uh, and he's going to be starting with the Saturday morning TBS main event show. And he's taking over Chris Cruz's spot. Uh, Chris Cruz and Scott Hudson are two names. We don't hear about a ton anymore in wrestling. What can you tell us about each and why, uh, Hudson took over for Cruz here? Because I really liked Scott Hudson. I, I, and I don't mean just personally, I did like him personally, by the way, and still do. He's a good guy. Uh, but I really loved, first of all, he was kind of on the Mark Madden side of the equation. He was involved in the, the wrestling publications. I can't remember who he worked for when I hired him. But he was clearly writing for somebody at the time. And I was in the frame of mind back then where, look, you're either going to be you're either going to fight with him or you're going to make him a part of the process. And I really experimented 
and you know, I did with Dave Meltzer, I did with Wade Keller, I you know, I did pri- mostly with everybody that I could. There was a little bit of a period of time when I reached out and thought, all right, if I open this thing up a little bit, it will eliminate the need for them to be taking pot shots from the sidelines about things they know nothing about or getting com- completely wrong. So there was a period of time when I opened it up a little bit. Uh, and Scott was one of the guys that I opened up to that I just, I just really liked his energy. He was coming at, you know, the writing about or reporting about the wrestling business from a, uh, a positive perspective in a, in a, not, not like, you know, put people over that shouldn't be putting over, but his general tone didn't start with a negative narrative, which made him different to me than a lot of other people. And then as I, cause he used to come, Scott used to come to the TV tapings. He lived in Atlanta. He was in law enforcement in Atlanta, actually. Um, and he used to come to the TV tapings to cover what was going on. And I would talk to him there. I would engage with him and I just, yeah, summarize. I really dug his energy. I liked his voice. I liked the way he treated um, commentary. Um, Chris Cruz, there was nothing wrong with Chris. There was absolutely nothing wrong with Chris. But to me, Chris felt a little too cookie cutter, a little too much of a formula. He was, he was playing it right up, straight up the middle, as he should, as he was trained, as he was encouraged to do, I'm sure. Uh, kind of like a sports caster would without, you know, bringing a lot of personality to it. But that's not what wrestling needed, in my opinion, at that point. It's one of the reasons I like Tanae. You know, my Tanae was kind of out of that same mold. And Mark Madden, who we talked about last week. So I was looking for people, you know, whether they were writers, you know, Madden was a sports writer. Uh, Hudson was was a wrestling writer. It might have been PW Insider. I, I just or Dave Shear at the time. I can't remember, but I, I was looking for people like him that were really immersed in it and were passionate about it, but were coming at it from a more positive perspective. And that's what I liked about him. Let's talk about um, the National Enquirer because it popped up with a story here that people talked about for a little while, and every now and again we'll get a question about it on the show. They ran a piece where they said that Ray Mysterio Jr. and Jennifer Aniston were perhaps romantically involved. And Meltzer would say there's absolutely nothing to that. It was just uh, an attempt which succeeded to get Mysterio some publicity because WCW wants to push him big time. Do you remember this National Enquirer story? And, and was this some sort of leak that you guys did trying to get some buzz for him? No, it was the truth. And, and I'm and I'm shocked that Dave Meltzer would think or be so arrogant as to assume that he is so important, especially back then in the life of Ray Mysterio, that if little Ray Ray was tapping that Jennifer ass, that the first thing that Ray would do was call up Dave Meltzer and tell him about it, or confirm or deny it. Ray was living large. Ray was living really, really large at the time. He was over in the 619 and Jennifer Aniston had a little, you know, she liked a little Latin flavor in her life. Are you being serious right now? Fuck no. Okay. (laughs) God, you got me twice today already. I was just like, I'm on a roll. God damn. All right. Can we get, can we put the misinformation on pause for a minute here? Cause just for a minute. Well, we're talking about Meltzer. You threw him into the equation. If we're going to bring Meltzer's name up, National Enquirer in the same sentence, we got to have a little fun with it. Well, I'm just saying there's the, you know, there is a, a bit of a reputation out there that Ray Mysterio once upon a time was a ladies man. And 
I've heard some other names from multiple sources where I was like, no way. But then when I saw this one, I was like, okay, now that one's bullshit. Tell me how this came about. I'm not sure. It, 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 I wasn't involved in it. I, I can't imagine it. Nobody in our office at that time, it would have probably been Alan Sharp. Um, he had the best contacts, you know, outside of Atlanta, but I don't think Alan ever had a contact with national Enquirer because we've never really engaged with them prior to that. We didn't engage with them after that. So it had to come somewhere. Um, or maybe they just made this shit up, you know, maybe, you know, who knows? They went to the Dave Meltzer School of Journalism and just figured, fuck it. We, we got to, we, we're at, we're at 8,250 words. We need more words. I know. Ray Mysterio's fucking Jennifer Aniston. Cool. Run with it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where it came from. Let's talk about, uh, something you do know about a, uh, an article that was published about the pro wrestling or the return of pro wrestling to the national consciousness. This came out on March 21st and Sounds there's a, serious. There's a photo of Dennis Rodman and Hulk Hogan standing next to each other. And then there's quotes from both you and Vince McMahon. I know you'll have fun with this. Here's Vince's quote. Very simply, Ted Turner wants to put us out of business. He doesn't give a damn about the wrestling business and he doesn't give a damn about the fans. This is just a folly for Ted, a business venture. On the other hand, the WWF is a family business and we passionately care about our product. We invented the term sports entertainment and we redefined what this business is and isn't. It's like David and Goliath. When you compare our resources to those of time Warner, and I dare say the time Warner cannot be pleased with the massive losses they're incurring in this venture. And you retort, we were profitable in 1995 and 1996. If Vince McMahon says differently, that's a blatant lie. And then you continued, Vince likes to cry about the deep pockets of Ted Turner and Tom Warner, but we're a publicly held company. I can tell you that they have more production staff, better production facilities, and a much bigger marketing budget. The difference is they don't have the talent. We do because that's where we spend our money. And McMahon replied, if Eric Bischoff says we spend more money in every area except talent, that's a blatant lie. They're willing to overpay for performers who are no longer in the athletic prime, and I have to operate in the real world. There's no way I could match the exorbitant guaranteed figures of a billionaire wanting to throw his money away, which I just find fascinating. So it's been a long time. Probably haven't seen or heard those quotes in 20 years or more. What do you think? It is fascinating, you know, and it, it, it was genius on Vince's part. And I, I don't throw that term around very often, but it's one of the things that Vince did right from the beginning. I mean, the minute he started, you know, his first reaction to us going head to head, head with him or, or hiring Hulk Hogan, um, it, here's, here's what's really interesting. If you go back and look at prior to Hogan coming to WCW, just prior, when, when the steroid, steroid trial was over, when Hulk Hogan got on the stand and denied that, that Vince McMahon sold him steroids or injected him or anything that when, when Hulk Hogan said the opposite of what the government was hoping to hear and that trial was over, Vince McMahon came out on the steps of the courthouse and buried Hogan, buried him after Hogan had just basically said everything he he's everything that he said is probably, you know, had a lot to do with Vince McMahon being found not guilty. Um, the first thing that Vince did is go out and bury him. Why? Because he knew he was coming to WCW. 
Now, that to me is a very focused individual. It's not about personal. It's not about the truth. It's not about facts. It's what do I need to do to protect my business? I'll do whatever, say whatever, act however I need to in order to protect my my family business. And I actually admire that in him. I do. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I have that, that I'm not wired quite that way. I'm, I may be close in some respects, but I don't think I could go as far as Vince did then, quite, quite honestly. Um, but it represents who I think Vince McMahon really was at that time. And he was fighting for his life. He was fighting for his, however many generations, I think his great grandfather or might have been longer than that, you know, started the WWWWWWF, you know, back whenever, you know, but so much of what he was feeling was very true, but a lot of what he's saying or he was saying back at the time wasn't. And this is a perfect example, but the, the, the genius is not just misleading or lying. That doesn't take much of an imagination. The genius is when he made a decision early on to position himself as the underdog. I cannot overemphasize enough of how important that was in the ultimate, you know, uh, the, the last scene of the last, the, the last act, right? That really is, he stuck with it. He, he, he not only galvanized his team, which is something you have to do. If the people around you think the wheels are falling off, they're going to scatter like rats on a sinking ship. So you've got to keep your team together. You have to say, do, act, whatever it takes to keep the team together. Because if once you lose your team and you don't have the infrastructure, you're, you're toast. And he kept his team together by playing that under, and he, and he was, I'm not suggesting he was pretending he was the underdog at that point. He was, because it was time Warner. It was Turner. We did own our own networks. We did have a lot of very, very unique advantages, but we had some very, very unique disadvantages as well that he didn't have, but he didn't talk about that. He talked about big, bad billionaire Ted, and we don't have the resources and we're a small little family owned business without any, (laughs) um, guilt, over what he had previously done to all of the other territories and all of the other people that he put out of business and all of the other people that he literally stole from territories by offering them at least what was perceived to be much better deals. Forget all about that stuff. You know, yeah, he was Attila the Hun, you know, up until this point, but now that somebody else was coming along and gaining him, uh, all of a sudden he was a poor little mistreated, you know, boy in the schoolyard and all the bullies are picking on him and he did that to galvanize his team he did that to galvanize his audience because you know he had a loyal audience base that he had developed you know for generations really in the northeast and and around the country at this point there were a lot of very loyal wwf fans and for vince to be able to publicly portray himself as the underdog who was getting just bullied and beat up upon by this you know entity called Time Warner and this Southern guy with a big mouth called Ted Turner and this little punk named Eric Bischoff, the more he could, you know, create that image and picture, the more loyal that fan base became, the more they were rooting for him to win. And that's what he needed at that point. There, therein lies the genius is his ability to play the underdog when he really wasn't. Let's talk about another underdog and, and we were pulling for him then and we still are now. And, uh, 
the story has a happy ending, but on March 31st, Meltzer would write, we have very little in the way of details at press time, but Scott Hall 37 voluntarily checked himself into rehab this past week, missing his WCW house show main event booking in Minneapolis on the 22nd and his nitro booking in Duluth on the 24th. Of course, he's supposed to be defending the tag titles with Kevin Nash against the Steiner brothers, even on this pay-per-view, but that doesn't happen. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, where you guys were in your relationship with Scott and when you found out that this was the decision and was WCW involved in that decision at all. Let's break that down just a little bit. Let's start with, you know, where we were in a relationship. I, I the minute I made up my mind to hire Scott, I knew that I was in for a challenge. His reputation preceded him. Everybody knew about it. Um, I felt like he, he was at least attempting to keep it under control or get it under control. I, I guess overestimated my ability to help manage that process in any way that I had to given our relationship. Uh, but it, he was much worse off than I thought. He's probably much worse off than he thought. And it, it got worse. And what's ironic about it is I never got mad at Scott. It's hard to get mad at somebody. And I, look, I, I've learned a lot about addiction um, through a good friend of mine by the name of Tim Ryan, who was a heroin addict and is now one of the leading advocates for intervention and support and treatment around the country. He speaks at all these big events all over the country. I produced a television show about him. We did a special on him for A&E Network about a year or so, a year and a half ago. So in the process of producing that television special with him and, and just becoming friends with him, you you know, I learned a lot more. And I didn't have that base of knowledge when this was all going on. But deep down, it was just like, you know, that human part of me knew that he couldn't help it. He wasn't making a decision out of spite. He wasn't making a decision out of anger. He wasn't making a decision that sounded something like, I don't really care if I've got nitro. I'm going to go out and get drunk and just see what happens or see what Eric does or, you know, what Hulk Hogan, you know, it wasn't that he couldn't help himself. And I knew that, I guess, intuitively um, uh, and tried to make it work, tried to support him as best we could. I mean, that was the if you had to define the relationship, that was the status of it at that point. Did it create problems? Absolutely. Did was it frustrating? Understatement. But, you know, I was of the mind of, look, we got to we got to try to make it work one for for human reasons and the other for business reasons. We'd already had a lot invested in him. We had to find a way to try to make it work or work around it. So let's talk about somebody else who has had a fair share of those problems, but here has a different problem. Meltzer would write, Eddie Guerrero looks to be out of action about six weeks due to a torn pack suffered at the pay-per-view. Of course, he's talking about uncensored 97, which we covered in the archives at 83weeks.com. Meltzer would say he's supposed to be at the top of the super junior tournament for new Japan, which was starting at the end of may. And he's supposed to be back as the black tiger, the defending champion, but that tour is now questionable and Jericho is going to be stepping in to take his place in house show matches. You know, you guys were doing some, some pretty cool things with Eddie at the time. Uh, not quite yet a top guy, but certainly in the mix for cruiserweights and TVs and us titles when he's got a torn peck like this. Is there a conversation as to whether or not he should have surgery? And does WCW ever take a stance? Not in this particular instance. I just mean, 
you know, sometimes we hear, well, the company wants me to get surgery or the company doesn't want me to get surgery. Where did WCW fall on those type discussions when a talent was injured? We, we had to stay out of it. I mean, think about that. If, if you, if I was your employer, Conrad, and you came to me and said, well, do you think I should have, you know, surgery on my back? God damn it, Conrad, you've missed three days of work this month, you know, because you were home with back issues. Yeah, go get that surgery. And then something goes wrong in that surgery. Guess who you're going to come and have a conversation with or your lawyers will? Because we were we, we encouraged you. We enticed you. We maybe even, it would be suggested, forced you to do something that you didn't really want to do. And when he did it, it went wrong. So we couldn't because of risk management and legal issues because we were a target. Remember publicly held company. Anytime somebody gets hurt, they're going to go see a lawyer. Sometimes lawyers are great lawyers. Sometimes they're scumbags. More often than not, they're somewhere in the middle. And the first thing they're going to do is look at a, a settlement in a payday and try to exploit this situation, especially with a high profile company, like a professional wrestling company where, you know, you're going to get headlines and people aren't going to be sympathetic to the company and they are going to be sympathetic to to the talent for all kinds of reasons. We've seen that recently. Uh, again, uh, the, the, the six-year news cycle about workman's comp and sports entertainment has risen its ugly head again, as it does every six or seven years. So th- there's a reason for that. And because of it, we, we stayed Switzerland. We, we, we stayed neutral when it came to encouraging people or discouraging people from you know anything that had to do with medical treatment. One of the things, uh, that we've brought up recently before, but I want to bring it up again because, uh, people online are obsessed with this around this time. And again, let's keep in mind, this is early spring. So late March, early April, 1997, 97 is when ECW is going to debut their first pay-per-view barely legal. And on that pay-per-view, they're going to uh, have Rob Van Dam anoint himself, Mr. Monday night. And he would start making appearances, uh, for ECW on Monday night raw, but that leads to all kinds of speculation that he was also talking to someone in WCW about coming in. And of course, this is before we see the debut of glacier. And a lot of people have repeat repeated a story that once upon a time glacier was considered or Rob Van Dam rather was considered for the role of glacier. Do you recall, and I'm not saying you did it because you've told us many times on the show that you wouldn't handle conversations with talent, maybe at that level, you know, if it was someone who was a main event, top money guy, you probably had to be involved, but otherwise those type of conversations could happen with Terry Taylor or Kevin Sullivan. Do you have any recollection at all of Rob Van Dam in this era being a topic and maybe even being considered for Glacier? No, and here's what's interesting about that story or, um, narrative i hate to overuse that word but what you said is true there were a lot of conversations with a lot of talent on a perspective basis or a potential basis that took place that i never even knew about some of it might have just been making conversation at an airport when two guys run into each other whether it be a terry taylor or kevin sullivan mike graham whomever you know hey you should you know send in some pictures maybe we you know maybe we got a spot for you that's that's natural that would be a natural banter for people from two different companies that happened to cross paths in the wrestling business. So I, th- there's a, probably been thousands of those conversations that I'm completely unaware of. However, in this case, because the, the, the premise of the story, I guess, 
is that Rob was under consideration for the Glacier character. Well, now that takes it out of the it could have happened at the airport category and puts it right into my lap because the Glacier character, as unsuccessful as it ultimately was, was my project. That was my baby. It started in my head. It ended in my head. And everything in between involved me. So had Rob Van Dam been a part of a discussion with regard to Glacier, I would not only be aware of it, I would have been a part of it. And it didn't happen. So you, we, can, we, can, we can put a wooden stake through the heart of that fucking vampire narrative right now. It never happened. Not, I don't remember. Not perhaps it could have. It didn't happen. Well, all righty. Let's talk about what did happen. Let's get to the pay-per-view. The opener is a, a singles match um, from the Gaia promotion. And this is a dark match. And then the opener on the actual pay-per-view is Rey Mysterio Jr. and Ultimo Dragon. Two of my favorites from this era. Meltzer loved it. He gave it four and a half stars. These guys are trading hot moves for nearly 15 minutes. And he would categorize it as being better than their Hogwild match, but not as good as their World War III match. Sonny Ono is uh, absent from ringside here, which is sort of interesting. But uh, a lot of fun moves here and a lot of innovation, especially for the time. Really a heck of a way to get a pay-per-view started. I know this is probably regarded as being a B-show, but this was a fucking A-plus match to me. You haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, what do you think? So cool. I was just with Ultimo Dragon in Tokyo. Uh, I think it was just last month when I was there, a month and a half ago. And we're still pretty good friends. We see each other. We'll, we'll see each other. Uh, we will have seen each other, I should say, since this is going to drop um, on Monday. But uh, I plan on spending some time with, with Dragon and, and Sonny in New York. My guess is we'll be eating some sushi. But Dragon is a very interesting dude. You know, he spent a lot of time in Mexico. Um he, he, I think he was married to a Mexican woman and, and he lived in Mexico, he did a lot of wrestling in Mexico, flew back and forth to, to Japan from Mexico. I think he still does, as a matter of fact, uh, because he's still performing in Japan and actually running, I think, a small wrestling promotion. Uh, but I loved his work. I love it. First of all, he's just the coolest guy you'll ever meet. He is such a good guy. You, you can't help but to love being around him. Super guy amazingly talented and because he spent as much time in Mexico and as much time in Japan and as much time in the United States with us as he did, he could work any style at the highest level. I mean, he was, he was so fluid and crisp at the same time. Um, and he could adapt to anybody's style. And I, I just cannot say enough great things about him. Ray is Ray. We all know how phenomenal he was. And I, like Dave, I really, really love this match. You know, and some of the things I noticed in this thing, if, if our listeners are encouraged to go and uh, order it up on the WWE Network, you know, hit the 12-minute, 37-second mark. For one perfect example of why these two were regarded so highly, and you'll see that, you know, Ultimo's got like a reverse kind of death lock, like death lock kind of gimmick on, on Ray. And he does a back bridge and gets a reverse chin lock on him. Now, in and of itself, that's a pretty cool spot, I guess. Rest hold, if you will. We'll call it whatever you want to call it. Because it looks like, first of all, it takes a lot of skill to even get into that position on the part of both of the, the performers. 
But the little thing, it's so often it's the little things that really make people stand out is if you go to and hit that 12 minute, 37 second mark, watch the way how Dragon, when he's got that chin lock on Ray, he's just jerking it. You know, he's really cranking on it in a way. Now, Ray was going with it, obviously. But when you look at that, you know, if you don't know anything about the mechanics of, of wrestling and how it all comes together and you're just an average fan who doesn't get, you know, spend hours a day, you know, on a, in a chat room or whatever, uh, if you just look at that, it is so believable. And when you hit sometimes the little things you do that enhances the match so much by making it look like it must really hurt, it really carries you through the, the rest of the match. And that was one, you know, I say that because I'm, I'm hoping, I guess, that, you know, young talent or aspiring talent, maybe people that have never even stepped foot in a wrestling school or an independent wrestler that's out there is listening to the show. Go back and look at this and look at all the little, don't just look at the big things they do. Those are obvious. Look at the little things they do that tells a story in the match or just makes it look so believable. You forget that it's not. Good stuff, man. You got to go out of your way to watch it. Two of my all time favorites. And, uh, this was great stuff. This was also the rubber match. I guess we should mention that because Mysterio got the win at hog wild. And Dragon got the win at World War Three. Mysterio is going to get the nod here. So there you go. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning. The next night, thankfully, Ultimo Dragon would beat Prince I.K. to win the TV title. So even though he's losing here, he finally gets the belt off Prince fucking I.K. Which needed hey, that. You, uh, you wait till we get to I.K. Before we leave this, if I can say something else, just to put these guys over a little bit more. Again, if you go back and you look at this match, look at the finish. Oftentimes we see real fast, fast back and forth kind of a series of moves and near falls. More often than not, the minute you go into that sequence, the minute as a viewer, I see somebody going into those series of sequences. I know exactly what they're doing, and you can predict how it's going to turn out. This particular finish, they had a really quick series of flurries of back and forth false finishes here. And the difference is when I watched this one back, it reminded me of two boxers, you know, locked in a corner, just beating the hell out of each other and trading punches back and forth in a way that you don't know who's going to get tagged. Somebody's going to, somebody's going down. You don't know who it's going to be. And I've seen fights like that. And that's what this reminded me of it. Again, it was the little things that they did. And maybe it was even so subtle. It was the pace because the pace of that, that sequence of moves actually built right up to the end. It wasn't, you do a move, I do a move. You do a move, I do a move. It was, you do a move, I do a move. 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 Boom, you're into a finish. And I think by controlling the pace of that sequence of false finishes, it made it so much more believable or enjoyable to me. Okay, enough of that. Conrad, this show's a blast, and I can't wait to keep digging into it, but I know you've got a special message right now. Texting and driving isn't just a dangerous problem. It's deadly. And if you drive while distracted, you're three times more likely to crash, but far too many people still don't recognize the dangers. Did you know that when you send or receive a text message, you take your eyes off the road for about five seconds and at 55 miles per hour, that's like driving more than the length of a football field, all with your eyes closed. In fact, in any given year, more than 3,000 people will die in crashes related to distracted driving. 
and about 400,000 more will be injured. And if your own safety isn't reason enough to stop driving while distracted, here's another one. It's also illegal. That's why cops are writing tickets to anyone caught texting while driving, and they're doing it to save lives. So remember, if you text while driving, you will get caught. You drive, you text, you pay. Let's talk a little bit about the segment you did backstage. Kevin Nash is going to demand that referee Nick Patrick be the referee for the handicap match. To be clear, the handicap match is him defending the tag titles against the Steiner brothers. The Steiners are actually going to go after Nash, but they're held back by police and Scott punches a police officer. He gets maced in the face and taken out in handcuffs, quote unquote, to jail. I'm mentioning all of this because you've got to have some sort of explanation as to why the match is going to, um, proceed the way it is. Scott Hall's been gone for weeks by this point, dealing with personal issues, but you guys have continued to promote him, but now the match isn't going to happen in hindsight. Should you have handled the Scott Hall situation a little differently since this is a pay-per-view in hindsight? Sure. Everything's perfect in hindsight. Everybody's a fucking genius after the fact and including me. Um, but at that time we weren't sure we didn't know we were hedging our bet. We were hopeful. Uh, we weren't getting a lot of good information one way or the other. So it was, you know, it was, I guess I'm probably being overly defensive. If I say it was, you know, a jump ball, we had to make a decision. It could have gone either way. It should have gone the other way. We, we should have, we should have just made the decision for him and, and planned early uh, to, to not promote him and to come up with a, an alternative story. But we didn't. And I'm not going to justify it or try to defend it. We just didn't. But I am also going to say that the story that we laid out here and the series of that, the drama, the questions that we created, um, the way this whole thing escalated throughout the show, I'm quite proud of. I mean, there's a saying, you know, it, it, I'm sure it's been said in every business known to man, you know, whenever you're, you know, handed a bucket of chicken shit, you got to try to find a way to make chicken salad. And that's what we were doing here. And I must say, it might have been some of the best chicken salad we ever created out of a bucket of chicken shit because it actually, storyline wise, played out really well. And the other thing I want to point out here to listeners, because some of them are, are younger listeners or, or people that just didn't really pay attention closely to the Monday night wars, like, like many people did, but you go back to 96 and look at the amount of the backstage storytelling that took place on nitro and on our pay-per-views. It had never been done before, not to the extent and not in the manner or the way that we did it. And this particular scene was as believable as anything that I think I've ever produced. It was really, really believe it wasn't overproduced so often, especially now when I look at, you know, backstage brawls and scenes that are backstage, they are so most of the time campy. I would say 75% of the time they were so phony and corny and formula driven that they're just campy. When there is a serious or intense scene backstage, more often than not, it looks sloppy because it's harder to work on a concrete floor. It, you know, a ring and the ropes and, you know, when you're in the confines of an area where you perform, you know, your athletic 
dialogue as consistently as you know professional wrestlers do is one thing. Now to go back and do it on a concrete floor backstage, you know the props are hard. You know, there's no ring ropes to work off of. You know, there there there's none of the tools that you normally have to create the illusion of of violence. Whereas when you're backstage, you just you're either going to really get it and get into it, or you're going to work it. And if you work it, it looks like, eh. This scene looked so believable to me. Hats off to Scott Steiner. He made it look believable, as did our our security, all of whom, by the way, were cops. So they were used to these types of situations. So they weren't just like rent-a-cops or, you know, hiring somebody from a modeling agency and giving them a, you know, a cop uniform, which is normally what happens today because for liability reasons, no other reason than that. So you get these people that have never been in a situation like you're asking them to perform in and it comes off looking fake as hell. This, this situation looks so real for so many of the right reasons. I really dug it. Next up is a fun match, especially for the time. Akira Hokutu against some Medusa. They're going to go five minutes and 13 seconds. Sonny Ono is out with Akira and, uh, they get two and a half stars. I kind of dig this. Uh, Medusa goes for a power bomb, but Luna Vashon does a run in and kicks her leg. And then Akira falls on top and that's the pin. Meltzer would say good work, but too short and a crap finish. I kind of wish it would have been a clean finish too. You've got two really good performers here. They probably were capable of a lot more than what we saw, but anyway, I enjoyed the match, especially for the time and place. what do you think? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get my bitch of this match out of the way right away at 2943 Medusa hit sunny with a back leg round kick, which is one of the most fundamental kicks in martial arts. It's one of the kicks you learn right before you get your gold belt. Okay. I mean, it's that basic and fundamental. And Tony called it a spinning wheel kick. That would be the equivalent of somebody calling a, a an Alabama college football game and calling, you know, a 96 yard touchdown pass, you know, a quarterback sneak. It just, drives me nuts when people that don't really know anything about martial arts try to call martial arts moves. Should we call it, Tony Schiavone right now and tell him that he's a failure at life? No, he wasn't a failure at life. He was doing the best he could with what he had. Nobody, including me came to him and said, and by the way, if anybody should have, it should have been me because I kind of understood some of this stuff. And I should have sat down with Tony at one point and said, Tony, this is a back leg round kick. This is a wheel kick. This is a side kick. You know, this is that, this is this, and that, and Tony would have done the work and he would have been right, but it didn't happen. Whose fault is that? Mine? Maybe Tony's for not coming and saying, Hey, we're seeing a lot more martial arts in our programming. Maybe to do a better job calling the action, we should sit down and go over some of the stuff. So I know what to call, but he didn't do it and I didn't do it. So we're both failures at life in that regard. So no, don't bother him. He's got enough to think about. He's got Lois. Come oh, I'm on, just thinking you should bust his balls a little later today at the show at Littlefield. Oh, well, that's a different deal. No, we'll call him out. In fact, I'm hoping you'll set this up a little bit. Because <laughs> I'll, you know, because you know how I get when I'm in front of a live crowd. I will go off on a motherfucking tangent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, I do want to ask about this though. We don't see Luna a, a bunch more here in WCW, but she pops up in the WWF. 
Uh, she even winds up working a lot of their pay-per-views and such. They pair her with gold dust and, uh, it was an interesting combination, but she's sort of in and out here. Why didn't Luna have a longer run with WCW? It just didn't fit the equation. And, and again, you know, while we had Medusa and we were working with a lot of the Japanese girls, it, we didn't have a deep enough roster to mix and match Luna and Medusa up enough different ways to, to sustain interest in anything. That's number one. Our, our women's division was very, very limited. Okay. And the other was Luna was, she was different. You know, she had, she had her own issues. Uh, I didn't know her well. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of it, so I'm not going to dig into it or discuss it too much. I just, I only know what you know, her former husband told me and, and, and things that I learned just being in the business at that time. And it was evident when, when she was with us that it was going to be a tough fit uh, from a, you know, chemistry point of view or, or personality point of view, as well as the fact that we just had such a limited roster. I didn't see a long-term play. No shit. You didn't see a long-term play because Akira vacates the title on June 15th when she leaves the country and that's a wrap. So like fucking two months later, this title isn't even a thing. Um, why did you sort of abandon the idea? Did you just, I think fans were getting behind it enough. It just wasn't hot enough. It was dying in the ratings. What's the reason for just saying, ah, fuck it. Let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, it wasn't a ratings issue. It was a logistics issue. Hokutu was, uh, pretty busy in Japan. So there's scheduling issues and look, you can only have a match between two people so many times before it just kind of runs its course. This was a fun match to watch. I think both, both of these women did a great job. I was proud of Medusa. Um, Akira Hokutu was, was, was doing a great job. Um, I hated the finish. I concur with Mr. Meltzer on that one. I just called him Mr. Meltzer. What the fuck? Um, I concur with Dave on, on the finish. I thought it was just, and uh, you know, it's a note that I made here and I don't want to beat this to death every time we do one of these shows, but you know, if there's one constant flaw, constant through the bad, the peak, of the good and the most miserable part of the, the the demise or failure, the one constant is finishes, poor finishes, uncreative finishes, finishes that didn't even live up to the match that it was a part of. And this is another great example of that. Finishes for WCW had always been, and, and even throughout this period of time at our peak, finishes were an afterthought probably 90% of the time. And, and I, I'm really, every time I watch one of these and every time it becomes so obvious to me now, and it wasn't, and that's what I want to point out. I didn't see it then. I wasn't looking at matches then the way I look at them now because I didn't have the experience to do it. You know, I was learning on the job literally as I was doing this and I wished, I wish I should say not wished. I wish I could go back just for my own satisfaction. If there was ever a way go back and, and rewrite some of these matches and see what they would look like with a great finish, because I think an average match with a great finish is outstanding. I think a great match with a phenomenal finish is something people talk about for decades. 
and we had a lot of great matches. Some of them, you know, were mid-card stuff. It doesn't matter. But even those matches, if they would, if there's much thought would have gone into the finishes as sometimes went into the match itself, and in some cases into the story that supported it, I think it, look, it wouldn't have changed the ultimate outcome of anything, but I think people would reflect back on some of these matches and some of these pay-per-views and have a much different feel about it. I know I would. Because I looked at this match and said, wow, on a scale of one to ten, I'm chugging along at a seven, seven and a half on this match. And then the finish came along and took me down to a four. Just, It's disappointing when I see it. But it wasn't Medusa's fault and it wasn't Hokuto's fault. It just it, whoever their agent was, whoever the team of people that helped them lay this match out was. Um, and, and ultimately mine because I didn't know any better. Next up, we've got Steve Regal working for 10 minutes and one seconds in a losing effort to Prince fucking Ikea for the TV title. Uh, Meltzer would write Prince again, got no reaction coming out. Regal's from stalling early and basically carried the entire match. Regal's offense was really solid, really solid, but Ikea did nothing on his comebacks and just seemed intimidated and totally out of his league. Ikea scored a reversal into a cradle for the pin. And after the match, Regal jumped him and put the Regal stretch on him twice. Star and a half. I guess we should tell you the backstory here. Ikea beat Regal on February 17th to win the TV title. And, um, yeah, there you go. You know, if you were being a conspiracy theorist, I think some people would say, well, maybe Prince Ikea was WCW's answer to uh, a Samoan sort of a wrestler that had just popped up on the other side, winning titles because on February 13th, another young Samoan named Rocky Maivia beat Hunter Hearst Helmsley for the intercontinental title. Four days later, you guys do it with Ikea and Regal. I just hate everything about Prince Ikea. You can't sell me on it, but I can't wait for you to defend this Regal was in there with a bum. Well, let me address the conspiracy theorist point of view first. The the only conspiracy theorist that would have come up with something as goofy as that uh, analogy between, you know, Rocky Maivia and Prince Iakea would be one who is probably higher than fuck on their favorite strain of Indica. It's just insane. And I, and I guess people entertain themselves with this kind of stuff. I'm sure it's floating or flew. It was floating around out there at the time, but it was just, it was more, you know, Rocky Maivia was not really showing up on anybody's, you know, no, radar in, in a positive way. So to suggest even the, in the most, you know, fucked up way that we were somehow responding to something that basically didn't even exist yet. You know, you gotta be pretty high to get to, a, to arrive at that story. Well, well uh, you had to be pretty high to put the fucking belt on Prince Ikea. Defend this shit. God damn it. All right. I'm going to defend this shit. I'm going to defend it. So for uh, so many, for so many years, and even in doing this podcast with you from time to time, you don't, you don't camp out on this point a great deal, but you have in the past talk about developing your own talent and giving younger stars an opportunity and elevating people, you know, past that glass ceiling. That was the big narrative. You know, the only way, you know, Chris Jericho and Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, you know, they were always going to be held down because there were so many guys at the top. And part of that was true. There's I'm not denying that that situation did exist because those were, you know, consistently, predictably, 
successful money drawing talent. And yeah, it's hard to break through that. Guess what? That's fucking life. But along with that reality and that challenge was born the narrative that, oh, they only care about those guys. And if you're a young guy, you're never going to get a chance. And they don't know how to create talent. Those are all the kind of bullet point, you know, bullet points of the narrative that's been around for 25 years. Now here we're taking a guy that quite clearly, whether it be Kevin Sullivan, Terry Taylor, myself, anybody else involved in the process said, look, he's got a good look. He's a good kid. He's, we see potential in him. Let's try to make it work. What the fuck is wrong with that? Conrad is he, was he that bad that he didn't deserve an opportunity to learn from somebody like Steven Regal, who, by the way, Steven Regal was never a breakout top star, either in WWF or WCW or anywhere else. He just happens to be one of the very best there is at what he does. It just never took him to that top spot kind of a position. But in terms of a teacher, a leader, somebody that you could put in the ring with a young guy that maybe has some potential and groom him in front of a live crowd under the pressure of a pay-per-view, because let's face it, you can't learn this shit in a fucking gym. You can't learn this stuff in a power plant. You could be as fluid, as precise, as perfect as you could possibly want to be in a training environment and get out in front of a live crowd under the pressure of a pay-per-view and shit yourself. So you've got to be able, if you see somebody with some potential, look for opportunities to put them out in front of a crowd under pressure, not just TV, pay-per-view, because that's a different kind of pressure. Put them out there, but put them in the ring with somebody that you know is so proficient and so fluent in the art and so good at teaching it. Because a lot of people that are good at it aren't necessarily good at teaching it. Regal was both. He was great in the ring. He was a, an excellent teacher, and he was somebody that you could depend on to elevate talent. Now, an example of what I'm trying to suggest to you here is go back to all of our listeners who are willing to go back and look at Spring Stampede 97 on the WWE Network, 3404. Take a look at the very first thing, and this is putting over Regal, not defending Ikea necessarily, but I'm telling you why I put them in the match. Or I should say I. I didn't put them in the match. Somebody else did. But why I support it even to this day. You watch what Regal does probably 15 seconds after he gets into the ring, if that, is he immediately established that he's the fucking heel. And he went overboard doing it. Not overboard to the point where I thought it was ineffective or obnoxious, but he made absolutely sure from a psychology point of view, there was no ambiguity in terms of who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. By the way, 75% of the people wrestling today should take a lesson from that. And I'm talking about people who are at approaching the top of the food chain. All right. It's a very fundamental thing. And sometimes you don't notice it, but this is a perfect illustration of why Steven Regal was in there with Prince Ikea. Number one, we established, we believed right or wrong, Ikea had potential and we wanted to nurture it as best we could. And yes, on a pay-per-view where we were taking your fucking money because that's what it takes. If you go back, you look at the fact Regal sets himself up. Everything that Regal did was designed to get Ikea over. Now, whether Ikea got over or not wasn't Regal's fault. If you watch this match, this is a textbook illustration of how you should try to elevate somebody 
and Regal did a phenomenal job. I can't wait till I see him again. I'm going to put him over because of this match. Um, the the thing that distracted me about this match, and you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to argue that Prince didn't have his comebacks weren't what they could have been. He didn't have the fire when he needed the fire. Um, there was not a lot of facial reactions out of him. There was no emotion, you know, in him. He was kind of like, ready, start, go. And he went, and the things that he did technically were pretty good. I can see why people thought he had some potential. But what was lacking is his emotion. There was no way to connect to him within the body of the story of the match, regardless of how good the story of that match was, as you can see here. So I'm not going to say that Prince was greater than you give him credit for or not. It's a matter of taste and opinion. What I am going to tell you and what I will defend is that, yes, we did put people on pay-per-view for the purpose of grooming and trying to get them to the next level. And not everybody's going to make it. Not everybody's going to make it in WWE in today's world. Not everybody was going to make it here uh, in WCW at this period of time. But you have to try. And that's what we were doing here. We were trying. I rest my case, Your Honor. To be clear, I don't have any problem with the person who portrayed Prince Ikea. I just know you guys fucked him around. You know, I mean, he, he was not ready to be here. He was in a shit character. Uh, eventually you guys gave him the artist formerly known as Prince IK and that at least gave him a little something. Uh, but it, as you said, he just didn't have the ability to connect with the audience yet. So maybe it was too much too soon, but speaking of that's, another, a, that, that's not really fucking him over though. I'm going to take exception to that. Fucking somebody over is putting him into a situation where you're absolutely convinced they're going to fail at or absolutely not giving somebody an opportunity, you know, they're going to capitalize on because you've got some other personal shit. Okay. Going on. All right. Let, Neither let's... of those were the case. We didn't fuck anybody over. Fuck gave me. them an opportunity. Fucked me out of 29.95. made me pay for a goddamn Prince Ikea pay-per-view match. And I do it all over again, given the opportunity. So fuck you. Well, you, you fucked the fans who called the WCW hotline this night too. Mean Gene goes out and teases a new click, a new gang in town. And when you call into the hotline, it's Mark Madden and Jeff Katz. And then they talk about everything, but the tease from the pay-per-view. And then they announce they have 15 seconds left and they're allotted time and joke. They save the big news until the end and briefly mention that Ben Juan Malenko might form a new group. And then the 900 segment ends and sounds, uh, sounds like a Dave Meltzer dirt sheet from the time <laughs> formula worked. It was, uh, Melissa would write, it was meant to be a satire on Okerlund, but the joke was on the callers who paid $15 to listen to the end. No, it was actually a satire on Dave, but whatever. Either way, you, you were, you were clear. You were clearly in the business of fucking fans around. So we were in the business of entertaining them. Well, you failed when you put the public enemy in there with Jeff Jarrett and Steve McMichael. I've never wanted to change the goddamn channel during a pay-per-view until this match. They go 10 minutes and 42 seconds. And if you can actually make it to the end, it's akin to fucking Chinese water torture. I mean, this, <laughs> th this is waterboarding level shit right here. Uh, Dave would write McMichael was brought back to earth as far as how far he really has to go when working with guys who didn't expertly carry him. And unbelievably they put Deborah on the table and I'm thinking just fucking put her through it. That would be something. It would be something, but of course that doesn't happen. Uh, Jarrett gets on the table instead. And when, uh, grunge jumps off, he moves through the table. He goes, there you go. Rocco hits Jarrett with the briefcase. Jarrett collapses and, uh, star or a quarter star 
is the rating here. When public enemy gets the win, it should be negative. It should be a dud. This match should have never happened much less on pay-per-view. What's next? <laughs> All right. I, I got nothing, brother. I got nothing. Yeah. It was horrible. And every time I see, and I like Jeff, don't get me wrong. I know it sounds because I pick on him for this fucking ridiculous gimmick that he wore to the ring. Who, who and why and how he thought that that was a good gimmick? Talking about his ring attire. The world's most annoying wrestler who can actually wrestle, Jeff Chira, in the world's worst outfit, teaming with the worst wrestler on any major roster. Uh, the former professional football player, Steve McMichael with the world's most annoying manager against perhaps the most annoying, silly gimmick in WCW history. I mean, public enemy is a testament to the genius of Paul Heyman, where he convinced everybody. These guys were cool. You go back and watch this shit. Lord, this shit sucked. Who wants to see it? Nah, 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 nah. Nobody. That's who (laughs) fucking wants to see it. Where were you when I needed you? Oh, you were home popping zits watching this stuff on TV, but that's all right. You were in France eating croissants or some shit. (laughs) Croissants and press coffee was fucking outrageous. So, all right, here we go. Here's what we're really here for besides the main event. Mean Gene is interviewing Harlem Heat and Sister Sherry. Of course, this is the famous promo that still lives to this day where unbelievably Booker T and his brother, Stevie Ray, a tag team are in a match later today where the winner gets a singles title shot at the world champion Hulk Hogan. I can't believe that's a thing that a tag team called the Harlem heat that are wearing identical gear are going to be in a singles match to decide who gets a shot at the world title, whatever Booker T in the middle of the promo says, Hey, after we beat the giant, after we beat Lex Luger, the other members of this four way later, Hulk Hogan, we coming for you. And you know, the next word, and he instantly realizes live on pay-per-view what he said, throws his hands up a little bit, almost to cover his face, but doesn't quite go that far and turns away. Like, what did I do? And Sherry's trying to comfort him on the home video version. It was edited by Turner home entertainment to say sucka, uh, but it still lives on, on the network. And Booker has come out and said that this was the most embarrassing moment of his career. And it's caught on tape. Of course, it slipped out total accident and he assumed he would be in major trouble and perhaps fired or blackballed for it and everybody was sort of waiting to see how hogan would react to this and stevie ray told the story that in catering when somebody brought it to him uh hogan made light of it everybody was happy nobody had to worry about it and blah 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 an interesting little live moment here and and one that people still talk about more than two decades later. When did you first see it or hear it or know that it happened? On the pay-per-view. Um, Were you watching like on a headset in the back or did someone no, come? Tur- I, was watch- I was watching on a monitor in my office, uh, which is almost the same thing, I guess. But I, I was in my office. Uh, Terry was not I – mean, Terry wasn't there. Terry was – I think I think I talked to Terry earlier that day, and that's why I was in my office. So I might have been on the, on the phone with him. Hung up, watched this thing, and of course, the the first two people that stuck their head in the door was Doug Dillinger and Janie. <laughs> and Janie, you know, I love Janie, and she's so you know close friend of my family. My kids still call her Auntie Janie, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, 
she never knew how I was going to react to certain things. I, I was a little unpredictable, I guess. And she stuck her head in the door. And I knew it was serious because whenever she was scared, not scared, she wasn't afraid of me, um, but not knowing how I was going to react. And she knew it was a serious situation. She kind of opened my door and she raised her eyebrows a little bit, kind of stuck her head around the door and said, uh, Eric, do, do you have a minute? I said, sure. And I, you know, and I was, I was thinking, I didn't, I, I didn't overreact to it, by the way. My reaction was kind of, uh, I can't believe he did that. But nobody knew. And I said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get through it. You know, I know Booker. I knew Booker then. I know him better now, but I knew Booker then and Stevie and this. Look, I don't want to sound. Let me put a button on that situation, that, that story first. I let Janie know it was no big deal. I didn't want to do anything to disrupt the show. If there was anything that needed to be done. And in my mind, I was already anticipating a phone call from somebody at Turner because that was the one thing, even though in 97, 96, 90, 95, 96, 97, Turner was hands off. I had nobody bugging me about anything creatively or in terms of characters. I didn't have to get anything approved when it came to creative or characters. As long as I stayed under a million dollars, I didn't have to even get budgets approved. If Again, I had a million dollar spending limit on any individual item or contract, but I kind of had a free reign to do what we needed to do. But because of the Bill Watts situation, which basically led me to, to getting the position I was in, that was the one thing that you could expect a phone call from. And I was thinking about that, but I wasn't angry. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was already done. The only thing I could possibly do at that point, from my perspective, was to be prepared for that phone call I'm going to get on Monday. Now, that being said, it was a different time. You know, I knew Booker pretty well back then. I had a sense of him, at least. Um, it, it, and I could see. I mean, you go back and watch it now, you know, and not to get too far, you know, out into the, you know, airy fairy world of Hollywood and acting and all of that, because I'm not an actor. Don't try to pretend I am one, nor do I, have I ever taken acting classes, but you know, you have a basic understanding of how it works. If, if you read about it, I guess, or know people who are, and you know, a method actor a lot is, is, has trained themselves to really believe they're in the moment that they're acting in emotionally, physically, they, in their heads, there's no different between being in that scene and pretending you're being in that scene or acting the scene. There's just no different. They really are that character believing that promo in that given moment. And where Booker grew up, how he grew up, when he grew up, that just wasn't an unusual type of thing to say in a, in a, in a tense situation. So it came very naturally to him once he worked himself into this, I'll say worked himself into a shoot, because in a way that's what a good promo does. You know, if you go back and look at some of the Ric Flair's best work ever, there was always a kernel of truth. You know, there was something that he really related to that he allowed himself in his mind. Not that he was a trained actor. He came by it naturally. But the best work that, in my opinion, at least, that's just my opinion, uh, the best work that I I recall seeing Rick do in, in his promos 
were the things where there was a, a personal issue that he believed to be true. And he would say things that, you know, probably should have got us in trouble from time to time. And we did it here. But here's what people have to remember. If they go back and look at it now or they want to discuss it or they hear us talking about it in 2019, uh, it was a different world. We were a different culture. Not that it was better or worse, not justifying it or trying to, to, to criticize for it. It was a different time and place. And the context was completely different. So it really wasn't that big a deal. And I'm, I'm shocked that Booker felt at the time that he was going to get fired for it. I understand why, because of the Bill Watts stuff and all the things that went on with him and, and the bad publicity that we got as a result of it. So I understand why he felt that way. But he also knew me pretty well. So I'm, I'm a little surprised he felt that way, but I understand it. Let's keep it rolling here. Let's talk about the next match. Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit have a hell of a match for nearly 18 minutes. And then it all goes to shit. Uh, well, I'll say there's a ton of run-ins here that don't make any sense. Jacqueline attacks Nancy. Jimmy Hart steals the U S belt Ugh. and Anderson clocks Malenko. Eventually Anderson steps out of the way and allows Sullivan to hit Benoit with a stick. Guerrero comes out with an arm in his sling from the torn pack and he winds up stealing the belt. It's just a, a fucking mess. And then at the end, close enough for the camera to pick up Malenko assures Benoit that he was not supposed to be here. Tony Schiavone has a meltdown. Who is he presumably about Eddie Guerrero, but either way it's, uh, it could have been a great match. They were certainly on their way there three and a quarter stars, but shit, man not fucking the finish we needed here on a pay-per-view it's not the finish anybody needed on any form of televised wrestling pay-per-view free or otherwise that was this again i'm going back to uh, you know criticizing myself and my product over the course of the years here which seems to be a consistent theme but perfect perfect example of overproduced, convoluted, nonsensical shit that I can only assume was motivated by everybody's desire to make sure that they got camera time because nothing else would make any sense. There is no way anybody could explain to me today why this convoluted piece of shit they call the finish existed other than somebody saying, well, God, I haven't been on TV in two weeks and you know, wrestlers, that was kind of the thing back then. You know, if, you, if, if you're not on TV, if you're not getting camera time, you're losing ground, right? So they try to find ways to put themselves on TV as often as they could. That's some old school insecure booking shit. But in this case, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, who the fuck wasn't involved in that finish? I think everybody, uh, the only people that weren't involved in that finish probably had already left the building because their matches were over and they were on their way to the hotel. Otherwise, you were going to get involved in this finish. It was really embarrassing to watch especially in a match that was so good. Yeah. Why fuck that up? I would have given them all a segment and had them, you know, break out onto a fist fight, eating popcorn backstage, arguing over a match if they needed TV time. And that would have been actually more entertaining than the finish. But to ruin such a great match with such a convoluted, self-serving, ridiculous mess is beyond logic to me. On paper, when you see... Benoit Malenko U.S. title. You think, man, this is going to be awesome, and it was, and until it wasn't. Let's talk about no, 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 no. And you get the Rocky Horror Picture Show for a finish. Oh, just horrible. Next up, Kevin Nash is going to pin Rick Steiner in ten minutes and twenty seconds. This is a tag title match, but it's a singles match because Scott Hall is in rehab, and they needed a reason 
to make it uh, two on one or one on one. So Scott Steiner went quote unquote to jail. Uh, six and Ted DiBiase are in Nash's corner. Wait, 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 wait. And I'm just curious now. I'm not not being defensive and I'm not being critical, but the way you said quote unquote to jail had this inference that you thought it was like a silly part of the angle. Is that is that what you mean? Or I just think are you just pointing out that he didn't really go to jail? It was just a storyline point. First of all, if he went to jail and he was wearing white booty shorts, that would have been interesting. Secondly, he didn't go to jail, and um, so what? It's a fucking wrestling show. I'm not did, Becky that. And, did Becky and Rhonda and whoa, fucking whoa, whoa. Charlotte go to jail? Hey, calm down, motherfucker. I'm saying you guys promised the fucking tag match here. You knew you couldn't deliver it because uh, you know 25 percent of the guys aren't there. So you came up with, I know what we'll do. Let's send one of the guys to jail. It just, What's wrong with that? Why not just fucking tell the truth? Scott Hall's not going to appear because we didn't know the truth for sure. We were, we were probably, we probably convinced ourselves there was a good chance he was going to be there. Okay. There you go. You didn't say that earlier. Well, no, I did say that. Okay. I, well, I, I didn't say it that way, but I, I did say we were hoping he was going to be there. So we, we convinced ourselves that there was a, there was a chance he was going to be there and kept the door open when it became obvious. It wasn't, yes, we had to, as we were talking about earlier, take this bucket of chicken shit and turn it into the chicken salad. And I think we did a good job here. And the fact that we creatively speaking, because wrestling isn't real, never has been before the reason we needed to, to keep the story going. We created a fucking in unbelievably intense, believable scene where he was hauled off to jail. Not unlike WWE just did for fuck's sake. So come on, lighten up on the quote unquote, went to jail. Just be a little respectful. We were doing the best we could with what we had with come your on. bait and finish or with your bait and switch for what people paid for. I got it. Now that you got their money, fuck them. You've already told us that was your attitude. I understand. Uh, <laughs> so six and DiBiase are in their corner. Uh, I can't wait to see you Monday, brother. I I'm going to kick wait. you in the balls. Oh, you, you okay. I'll, I'll be waiting. For but you. you know what? I'll have Tony Schiavone there to do commentary and say it was a wheel kick. Even though it wasn't. <laughs> so <laughs> Nick Patrick's the referee in this shit show. Uh, tons of interference, tons of silliness. They're undoing the, uh, padding on the turnbuckle. Uh, eventually, you know, what's coming. Nash gets the win jackknife power bomb. Patrick doesn't want to count the pin at first, but eventually he does star and a half. What say you, if we can just for a minute and I'll tie these two together, but let's go back to the Nash Steiners match, you know, and it is, you know, it, it was a bucket of chicken, try to turn it into chicken salad. It is what it is. It was what it was. We neglected, you know, a plot point place there and keep in mind we were beginning to you know we were what eight months in or nine months into the nwo story and we were trying to create vulnerability within the nwo because up till this point or shortly before this the nwo was pretty dominant so we wanted them to appear to to have cracks in their armor and and be vulnerable uh so that the baby faces WCW could get their comeback. And one of the things that we did in that Steiner's match that was kind of subtle, but important to note is that we created the, uh, the DiBiase story between him and Nash and the heat between them and DiBiase leaving ultimately the NWO. So that, that was one point. Um, in terms of this match, uh, look, it, I thought it was pretty good. I loved the finish. 
the match told a story. It got it got giant over. I thought the way he did it, it was a nice little. And that's what I sometimes when when I say finish or when people hear me say it, um, they might assume I'm talking about the physical series of things that happened that lead up to the final three count. Sometimes it's a story that's told as a result of some of those physical things. And I think that finish got giant over probably as much as anything had up until that point, because it seemed very natural to him and it brought him and Luger together and they gelled as a team. And I I thought when I watched this, because clearly I forgot about it, I didn't know it even happened probably two days after it did, but when I go back and look at it now and I look at the psychology, what they were trying to achieve, how did the crowd react to it all, who benefited, who could have benefited more. That's kind of the way I look at matches. I really do break them down into tiny little pieces that might otherwise be unrecognizable to other people just because that's – and I watch television that way. I watch the news that way. I watch movies that way. And when I watched this back, I thought it really – what from my perspective as a – as a producer who likes to try to find a way to be a good storyteller, I thought this match was actually quite good. Wade Keller would report the bickering and finger pointing behind the scenes in WCW has become a major issue for management to deal with. The main problem over the last couple of weeks has been between Kevin Nash's faction and Kevin Sullivan's faction. Nash apparently believes Sullivan feels threatened by him and is sabotaging his angles to make him look bad and trying to break him and Scott Hall up as a team to divide their power as a unit. The heat was over the Steiners Hall and Nash match, barely being promoted on the March 31st Nitro. Yet a long segment was dedicated to Flair and Piper for which there was very little planning and thus didn't make much sense. Sullivan apparently believes Nash is showing some of the same tendencies he did as part of the click in the WWF that led to major problems in 95. Last week, Sullivan called Bischoff to alert him to Nash, saying Nash threatened him on a phone conversation or in the hotel, and Bischoff called Nash and asked him about it, and Nash apparently said Sullivan wasn't clear-headed enough to know what he said. And Bischoff set up a special meeting last weekend before the pay-per-view to try to settle these matters between Sullivan and Nash. What can you tell us about this? We love to hear about the back the, the backstage politics and the infighting in WCW and Kevin Sullivan and Kevin Nash coming at odds here and you having to set up a meeting of the minds before the pay-per-view seems like a pretty interesting story. It's probably not as interesting as it reads because, you know, I mean, Wade Keller's is reporting some very specific detail there. I don't know where he would have gotten that detail from unless he was sitting in the fucking room when it happened. Um, and I'm pretty sure he wasn't. So that means he was relying on somebody's, reporting of something that supposedly happened. I'm, and I'm not suggesting it did. I'm not suggesting there wasn't tension. Let me make that really clear. Um, there was tension. Maybe not for the reasons that Wade, you know, elaborated on and decided was true, but Wade got his information from somebody. Un, you know, unlike Meltzer, Dave, Dave didn't, or Wade, I should say, Wade didn't make things up. Okay. That was my experience with Wade. That's why I'm far less critical of Wade, even back then. And I had my issues with Wade because he would report things that were inaccurate or not true at all in some cases. And it used to drive me just as nuts as when anybody else did it. But for the most part, that wasn't his style. It wasn't the way he produced his stuff. 
But nevertheless, we're talking about this specific incident. How would Wade have been able to put the level of detail to those various conversations and, and, and where they led unless somebody was talking to him and giving him that detail? Of course. All right. Now, I don't know who it was. I have a hard time believing it was either one of these guys, actually. Well, it probably rhymed with uh, Mary Mailer. Ah, that could be. And if that is the case, and we're talking about Terry Taylor, if that is the case, and I believe that to be true because he couldn't help himself. He just he could not help himself. Um, then he's getting one man's interpretation right. that has probably skewed with a little bit of an agenda attached. Sure. That's the nature of that kind of communication. So here was the problem. Kevin did have an issue. Kevin would get fucked up after a show or in the hotel bar. He would say stupid shit. Just is what it is. We all did. Not just Kevin. I'm not picking on Kevin. I like Kevin. I respect Kevin Sullivan a lot, actually. And I hope to see him again this weekend. That being said... It is what it is, brother. <laughs> we all knew it. Every uh, People outside of the company knew it. And there were times when these guys would get into arguments after a show, you know, when they had been drinking and things escalated. And I do, you know, I can see, as you relay that Wade Keller story to me, I could see a situation where these two guys after a show were in each other's shit or on the phone or whatever the case may be, and I would have to get involved. I, I could see it. I don't remember it actually happening, but I could certainly see it happening. I don't, I'm not going to say it never happened. That's for sure. Cause it seems too, it seems too close to, to the way things were back then. And yeah, I did have to settle things down. And there were times when people had two strong differences of opinions. And when it escalated to the point where it started getting, um, uh, obvious to people outside of the office, then yeah, I would have to set these guys out and say, look, motherfuckers, we got to work together. Let's get this shit figured out. You know, motherfuck each other if we have to, if we need to clear the table and, you know, call an ambulance, we'll do that too. But when it's done, it's got to be done. And then we move on. That was kind of my approach to things. So if it happened and I had to sit down with these guys, yeah, I'm not going to deny it happened, but it wasn't as big a deal as it sounds. Well, next up is a match that is probably not that big a deal, but the result will be a big deal. Lex Luger wins what's billed as a four corners match, but it's really a tag match between he and the giant against Harlem heat. They go 18 minutes and 18 seconds. And that's pretty ridiculous rules where the winner of the first pin gets the title shot, which makes pretty much no sense from a booking standpoint, because in theory, why wouldn't one of the Harlem heat just pin the other one? And then that brother gets a title shot, but they don't do that. Instead they argue and, um, the match is pretty boring. It's probably not worthy of being this high on the card. I think just the stipulations are a little silly either way though. Luger gets the win. It's a one-star match. The, the bright spot of this though, is because Luger now wins the match. He is, he is due a title shot down the road against Hollywood Hogan. He's going to redeem that title shot on the August 4th edition of Nitro. It's one of the most famous moments in the history of Nitro and Monday Night Wrestling. In fact, it sets all kinds of ratings records. It is a huge deal. Of course, we remember he would lose that belt back to Hogan just six days later at Road Wild. But either way, it was a, a feel good moment and it was made possible because of this match. So stupid as it is, 
something good came out of it. You watched this back. Well, I, no, I, and I thought, you know, again, I'm going to go back to I, I it, it was you know, booking wise. Yeah, it was stupid. The, the story made no sense. The stipulations made no sense. And this might be one of the reasons after sitting through a couple of these uncensored and, you know, looking at the public enemy, you know, horseman match from a little earlier in this episode. There's a reason why I hate gimmick matches as much as I do. I kind of feel like I've gone through some kind of psychotherapy with you having to go back and watch some of this stuff. And now I understand why I have the visceral response to certain things that I do, because so much of it, what I experienced that I would consider it a gimmick match was all horse shit. The majority of it was really, really bad. And this is another example. There was no logic. The stakes made no sense. The structure of the match made no sense. The story going in made no sense. And therefore, the match didn't make any sense. But I'm going to go back to what I was saying moments ago. I thought this, this match did a great job of actually getting the giant over and setting Lex up for, as you just pointed out, kind of a really big fucking moment. So I don't think it was as stupid of a match in, in, in its entire context as maybe we're making it out to be. But I will admit, the backstory, the stakes, the steps, it's like fucking ridiculous. Well, what's not ridiculous is the main event. If you're only going to watch two things from this show, I'm going to encourage you to watch the opening match with Ultima Dragon and Rey Mysterio, and then go watch the main event. Uh, it feels special, even though the, the hype leading into the pay-per-view and even through the pay-per-view, they talked about the four-way like it was the real main event, even though they promoted it as being a triple header main event, blah, blah, blah. DDP and Randy Savage feels like a main event. It's got Michael Buffer here. You've got promos from both guys ahead of time. Uh, even Kimberly is doing some mic work beforehand and, and she's involved because going back to the uncensored show, which we've covered in our archives at 83 weeks.com, you'll recall that, um, that's where they did the playboy segment where macho man comes out and he spray painted the NWO letters over Kimberly in her centerfold. And they make that into a hot issue. And so both of the ladies are involved here, both Liz and Kimberly, a real, real great showing for the macho man. Even Meltzer would say Savage being the best he has in a long time. And even uh page really getting the timing of when to make his moves down very impressively. So he puts it over really strong. He gave it three and a quarter stars. I would say it's even better than that. A really, really good show at the end. There is some interference, you know, some of the NWO guys are down there and, uh, ultimately the diamond cutter out of nowhere gets the win and Nick Patrick is reluctant to make the count, but he does. And then there's a big pull apart as we're going off the air. You're trying to stop Savage from hitting Kimberly. So Savage, um, you know, you, you and Savage get into it. Uh, it's an interesting finish. But it is a major moment for Diamond Dallas Page. And he's talked about this a lot where he found out that he was getting the win that day. I guess Arn was the agent for the match. And he asked Randy what he wants to do. And Randy allegedly says, I think I want to take the diamond cutter. And Arn put over to DDP what a big, important moment this is in his career. And they started, you know, really the feud of the year. They would continue this through Great American Bash, Halloween Havoc, Pro Wrestling Illustrated would call it feud of the year. And I think most people would agree it's up there for 97. 
what do you think of the match and, and, and tell us, talk to us about the finish and how this sort of became a, uh, a crowning moment, the jumping off point, if you will, for DDP. Before I get into that, I think it's worth noting, given the, the quotes that you read to us earlier in this, in this show about, you know, Vince McMahon's, you know, perception of WCW is that we were paging or we were paying, you know, aging, you know, has been stars past their athletic prime that are the past their athletic prime. And we were paying them ridiculous amounts of money. Mr. McMahon, if you're listening, motherfucker, listen to this. I paid him zero, zero. You know who paid him? Slim Jim. So I got this aging star that was past his prime that you let go, Vince, you let him go. Cause you wanted him to be an announcer. And he came to me for fucking free and went on to an amazing second half of his career. I thought that was just kind of sweet to point out. Now, as far as the match goes, it's really, really fun to watch. And again, obviously I'm very close to DDP. I was closer to him back then than I am now, literally closer. Cause he lived two doors down from me. Uh, but you know, I traveled with DDP when he was an announcer before he ever started training at the power plant. I knew what his desire was. I knew he was really frustrated that he never really got that opportunity to train because he was too old. He never got the opportunity to get into the ring and perform. I saw that when I worked with him in the AWA back in 88, 89, that's who he was then. And for him to make the decision at the stage of his life that he did against all odds. And by the way, the fact that he was my neighbor and I was running the company was just another um, barrier he had to crawl over um, for two reasons. One, because I was actually harder on him than I probably would have been on anybody else because I knew I had to compensate for the fact that we were friends. Just like I would be when I brought my son into TNA. I was harder on him than I, than I would have been on almost anybody um, that was breaking into the business because I knew if I wasn't, he wasn't going to overcome the fact that, you know, Garrett was my son, or in this case, DDP was my friend and my next door neighbor. So I was, if you ever talk to Paige and you ask him about that, I'm pretty sure he'll support what I'm telling you. I was, I wasn't brutal to him because I admired him for trying, but I, I discouraged him. I, I let him know you know, how I really felt about it and what I thought the odds were given where WCW was at that time. So I was far from his biggest cheerleader. Trust me when I tell you that. And then knowing all of that, that I know and having lived it in, in many cases, you know, every weekend, you know, all day Saturday and all day Sunday, when he would find his way over to my house and talk my ear off for two days straight, um, going through all of that with him, and then seeing it all kind of come to fruition in such a positive way here, I don't know, made me glad we're doing this show today. It, 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 it's, it's, and it's a testament to him. It's got nothing to do with me. It's a testament to him. It's a testament to Randy Savage, who I thought put on a phenomenal match. You know, even though he was a broken down, old, retired, past his prime, you know, wrestler who was taking advantage of, you know, a huge paycheck from, from me that somebody else was paying for. He put it up, I thought, you know, and I I don't remember what you said, Dave said, but, you know, that might have been one of the best 
physical matches, maybe not the biggest match on the biggest platform in 10 years leading up to this, but in terms of the actual match and the mechanics of it and the emotion that was created and the physicality involved in it, I, I don't know, man. I thought it was pretty damn exciting. I was really happy to sit down and watch it. It was awesome. Go out of your way to see it. I think you'll be really, really happy you did. Uh, and it's a special moment for Diamond Dallas Page. The next night on Nitro, even though Sting wasn't here on Spring Stampede, uh, nor was Hogan. Both were on Nitro the next night here in my hometown of Huntsville, Alabama. It's the first non-sellout in like seven weeks. Way to show up, Alabama. But as the show is going off the air, uh, Page is doing an interview where he's challenging Savage. Savage comes out on crutches. I guess it's worth mentioning when he does a double sledge in this spring stampede, he wakes up the next day in severe pain. Uh, he tore some ligaments in this match in his ankle, but, uh, he still, he still makes the town the next night, just on crutches. Well, then the rest of the NWO comes out to support and second savage and Hogan himself says, I'm going to take care of page. And at that point, sting comes down from the ceiling, throws a baseball bat to page. And the show goes off the air. So a really hot finish to Nitro the next night and sort of the, uh, tip of the cap from sting to diamond Dallas page. And this is at a time when sting is the hottest baby face in the company. So really, really cool to see DDP sort of become a made man here. Now let's get to some rapid fire questions. Uh, we asked you guys on social media, if you had questions, Eric, are you ready? Ready. Jeff wants to know, was Paige going over Randy Savage always the plan? If so, how long before? It wasn't always the plan. We were probably feeling that out all the way up until a week or two before. And I think everybody wanted to be certain. And Randy was the one that had to make that determination. Not not from a storyline point of view and not because he had any creative control because that wasn't the case. It was, is he ready? Is he not ready? And here's what here's what was obvious to all of us going into this. You know, the way Paige works or worked at that time, and I'm talking about prior to the actual match, is he would sit down and write every single beat. And I'm talking about long form by hand, not on a laptop. He would literally write, I'm going to go to the top rope. And when I do, you move eight inches to your left. And when you move eight inches to the left, I'm going to come down. But when I come down, make sure I trip over your left ankle. I mean, it was that kind of detail. And it was agonizing for anybody else other than Randy. Because Randy liked to prepare that way, too. A lot of guys didn't. You know, Hogan, if you try to talk to him like two hours before a match, Ric Flair, much the same way. You know, Roddy Piper, much the same way. Um those were guys that you, the less time you talk to them before the match, more likely the better the match was going to be because they were feeling the crowd. They were working. They were trained coming up the way they came up. I'm talking about Flair and Hogan and, and guys like Piper and or others, but they were Arn Anderson. Another example, they were trained really to let the crowd dictate to them what the match should be. And they could improv literally in the ring, much like a great stand up comedian could do or a great actor or actress could do is improving based on the, the energy of the audience because not every audience is the same. Uh, and, and Randy and M page both fortunately loved to spend weeks sending each other faxes and notes and discussing for hours over the phone, 
ultimately what this match was going to be. And that's really fortunate because Paige wasn't able, his brain just didn't function. He didn't have the experience is what it boiled down to. It's not that his brain didn't function, right? He just didn't have the experience to go out there and wing it with a guy like Flair or a guy like Hogan. He, he, the only way he could feel remotely confident was to over-prepare on paper. And like I said, fortunately, Randy was much the same way. So it worked out really well. And I think, it, you know, the amount of work and time that they, they put in collaborating to, to put into this match gave Randy the confidence that it was going to turn out to be a great match and the finish would turn out hot. And Randy came to us and said he's ready to go. That was Randy's decision for Paige more than it was my decision for the reasons I described above or earlier. Francis wants to know who designed, who designed the look of the announcer's table for this pay-per-view. Oh, David Crockett would have head up, headed up that initiative. I'm not sure who our set designer was from Turner broadcasting at the time, but David, David Crockett would have over, oversaw it. RJ wants to know is Dean Malenko, the most underrated wrestler at this time. He's my fucking hero. I love Dean Malenko's work. I really, I wish I would have appreciated it as much then as I do now. And maybe it was impossible because there was a lot of other people that had a lot of, you know, great work, similar work and styles. You know, you had Eddie, you had, you know, obviously you had Dean, you had Chris, you had Jericho, you know, there were, you had the luchadors. There were so many great talents in that era. Uh, and by the way, one of our listeners pointed out on Twitter that I misspoke in our last week's, uh, podcast when I said, you know, the cruiserweights were at its peak in 1999 because we were talking about the vanilla midget comment. You know, that was a mistake on my part. They were at their peak in 96, 97, 98. That's when they were at their peak. But I think looking back at all of that great talent now, and there was so much of it, Dean Malenko is still one of my favorites. If not the favorite, one of my favorites. And it's more than anything, his work in the ring obviously qualifies him for that. Um, but man, the minute he walked out the curtain, he made me believe. And very few, very, very few wrestlers could do that. Arn Anderson could do that. Arn Anderson made me believe the minute he walked through the curtain. Arn Anderson made me believe in his promos. He never broke character. He never did or said anything that made me believe he was trying to memorize or he didn't really believe what he was talking about. You know, we talked about method acting earlier as it related to Booker T and the end bomb. Same thing. You know, there are certain guys that have trained themselves and they don't even know they did it. They just did it. It's inherent in, in, in their talents and abilities. They've learned how to become method actors without even knowing what that is. And Arn was one of them. And Dean, I think, is one of the best. Well, I'll tell you what nobody will ever make me believe, and that's that Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake went into the WWE Hall of Fame. When you saw that announcement, what did you think? I'm going to tell you tonight, Littlefields, on stage, live, in front of an audience. I'm not going to do it here. I know it's a, I know it's a shitty thing to do, but I've got a lot to say, and I'm and it's not what you expect. Okay. Well, tickets are on sale now. They're just 39 bucks. Go pick it up right now, whw83.com. And uh, I can't wait to bust your balls about Prince fucking Ikea. You leave Damn. my balls alone, motherfucker. Just stay away from my balls. When I kick you in the balls tonight, I'm going to have to got one. You've got one of your own. <laughs> Tony Schiavone's going to say, that was a nice wheel kick. 
Yeah, uh, jump, spin, 360 tornado kick off a wheel kick, spin, hook kick combination. My, awesome. Yeah, my big ass ain't doing none of that, but I am going to bust your balls. Pick up tickets right now, whw83.com. He is E. Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Our show is at 83 Weeks, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.